0: Or visit collateralbase.com
1: Everything is personal right here Everything is personal right here Everything is personal right here Len May and DNA hate guaranteed when you press and the play
2: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. Now, I know I'm going to butcher the intro of this guest, but I'm going to do my best because it's very long. So I'm going to try to read it, but I'm going to let uh, our guest uh, try to correct me if I have everything anything wrong. So I'm really excited to have Sarah Payan on the podcast, who is uh, the public education officer for Apothecarium. Also is an award-winning cannabis educator, uh, specializing in cancer-related therapies, lecturer, host of the Planet uh, podcast with Sarah Payen, a legislator, writer, and also a stage three cancer survivor. Uh, is it? Did I miss anything? No, you, you, wow, you did it so, all. I can't believe so it. Anyway. I want to I ask you a question about this. Yeah. The, the word survivor. Like, I, I really think, and, and I'm, and I wanna have this open dialogue with you. It always strikes me as sort of um, not a very empowered description. Like, I like a, you know, rather than survivor, maybe a warrior, maybe something. What do you, what do you think of that uh, terminology, survivor?
1: I like to think of myself as more of a thriver.
2: Thank you, thank you. I love that. That is exactly what I was hoping you would say because, I, you know, we we've had I had so many conversations, with so many uh, people who have overcome uh, cancer, and to me, like you're a survivor, it feels sort of victimy in a way. Like, yeah. but you're, I feel people who are who have overcome this are are super strong, and I wanted to find a very like, empowering term to describe that. So yeah, a thriver, I
1: like a lot. Yeah, I, I, agree, I agree with you completely. And it's, you know, honestly, in recent years, I haven't even, and it's not that I don't like discussing it. I just haven't discussed it as much because it's been 11 years. But I do like to bring it up, especially when I am talking to people who are going through it so that there's a, there's a certain way that people hold you when you're going through cancer who haven't been through it before, because I always refer to it as a great equalizer because we've all been touched by it in one way or another. And it seems like more and more people are, but having the conversation about it, I really feel like it helps people going through um, cancer to be able to just feel relaxed and feel really honest. And like, they can be more forthcoming about what's going on in their lives because they know that I'm not going to, get frightened because I know like when I was sick, people would be like, Ooh, or, you know, a friend would come over and they'd want to talk to me about stuff in their life. And they'd be like, I feel so bad. You're going through so much. I'm like, no, please let's talk. I want to hear about everything, but what I'm dealing with right now,
2: you know? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think people in general are very, uh, they don't know what to say to people that are sick. Like I had a, my uncle was in the hospital and, uh, Hey, how you doing? How you feel? Like it's a typical question. You want to engage with them on a level where you don't really emphasize the illness, I, I would think. And same thing with people who are, uh, have, you know, a condition, I, I don't know. I guess handicap is not the right uh, terminology. Handicapable, I guess, is the right way to say. But but it's 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 people who have these conditions, and I and you want to, they want to be treated. I had the conversation with people They want to be treated. Just like you would anybody else, a normal conversation people don 't want to emphasize their illness all the time. I think
1: yeah we 're more than our illnesses, you know before we got ill, we had rich lives and relationships, and those those continue it 's part of the thing that we 're going through. We need to have our toolkit and our our group of people who help us through it. you know, having a strong community is super important. But it is, I mean, that's one of the things like when I was sick, I looked a lot different than I do now. And that was the first time um, I, I've used cannabis, you know, prior to cancer, but it was when I got my medical card and people hold you in a different way. And they're a little bit afraid of you because they're not sure what to say. And you're like, thinking inside like, damn it, I'm still the same person. And that's actually, too, like reflective of what it's like when we get older, too, because as we get older and we look different, like younger generations treat us differently. And it's like, you know, I was a hellraiser from way back. You have no idea. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they, they don't have any idea. I mean, I talked to my my daughter and her friends about that. And, uh, you know, I'm sort of, I guess, the kind of the cool dad. But they're, they're you know, they're scared of me in a way because uh, I'm like. Yeah, you don't even understand. Like when I was your age, you think you guys are doing stuff. You don't have no idea. And I guess, I guess, looking back at my parents, my dad used to tell me the same stuff, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, but no, it's you're absolutely right. It's a really, really good point you brought up.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's actually one of like we have Jeff and I have nieces, but we don't have our own children. And I always tell them, I think we're kind of lucky because thirty years on the road he's got some stories, but he would be the strictest dad because he knows everything that somebody could possibly do. Yeah.
2: So I, when I introduced you, there was, do you have enough jobs? Do you have enough things to do? <laughs> Just oh, asking. No. Maybe you want to take over some of mine too.
1: <laughs> that is actually one of the things that, you know, after being in this work for a decade that I'm really looking at, like, How do we, you know, when you're engaged in everything and you love your work, how do you pare it down to the point where, you know, you can't be good at everything, right? So how do you, when you're enthusiastic about something, how do you, you know, keep it in check so that you can be the best you can possibly be in everything that you do? And that's actually been my, we were talking about this before we started recording, like, I think my plate's pretty full and learning to say no has been like one of my biggest lessons and also to do it without feeling guilty. And, you know, of course, you never want to put anybody out either because we've got a lot of great people that, you know, are wonderful to collaborate with in the industry. So, so how
2: do you how do you do that? What What is sort of your method uh, that you use to be able to say no to certain things? Or
1: uh, I got an assistant <laughs> and she says no. <laughs>
2: That's great. Uh, OK, so how did you train your assistant on what to say no to and what not and what to say yes.
1: What not? Well, in the beginning we had lots of conversations about what my goals were like we partner, you know, and and um and she would come up to me and say, "Hey, so and so has reached out to you about this. What do you want to do?" And she so she started to see the patterns. And we've been working together now for a couple of years. So it's been really really helpful. And in the beginning, there was a lot of back and forth about, do you want to do this? Do you not want to do that? But it was also a gift because it was giving me that mindfulness of, I have all this stuff on my plate and, you know, what's, what's important, where do I really have to show up and what's, what's something that'd be nice to have, but it's actually going to kind of cramp my style at this moment. And a lot of it is people asking to pick my brain you know, and I always say that's No, that's, I have
2: no idea what you're talking about. No, you idea do. I know all, all the time. Like you know, I pick your brain. Well, and I, and I want to give so much, but yeah. then it becomes a burden uh, in a way.
1: I mean, it's, it's a nice problem to have. It's nice to know that people want to talk to you and get your opinion. Like I remember when it first started happening, I would respond to everybody and I would have coffee with everybody. And then all of a sudden I was like, I'm up till two o'clock in the morning writing an article because my dance card was full. And you have to have that work-life balance. So if it's somebody who, like if it's, of course, if it's somebody I've ever mentored, my door is always open. If it's somebody who's critically ill, of course. But I think one of the biggest distinctions is also about people who want your help. They want it for free, but they want to make money off of your help. And that's like, that's a case by case basis, because if it's like somebody who's really working hard and doing a lot of stuff, doesn't have a lot of resources. And I'm like, wow, you're awesome. I'll do it. But if it's somebody who's just out of nowhere, gets a hold of me, they could be wonderful. I'm not saying that they're not, but you do have to like hold in your energy for yourself too. You got to fill the well.
2: Yeah. hundred percent. So how do you, how do you qualify if, you have somebody that's uh, sort of, uh, you know, that is looking to pick your brain so they can make money off you. Is there, are there qualifying questions? Like how do you know upfront? Because people can be stealth when they come at you like that.
1: Well, I usually give them my hourly rate.
2: (laughs) Wonderful. I got to start doing that too. Uh, it's a two minute conversation. And if you want anything more than that, uh, Here's you know I'll charge five hundred dollars an hour or whatever
1: the hell. It is. That's it. I it always say sense. two fifty for a coffee. I'm giving yeah. them I'm giving them a discount.
2: Yeah, I think uh, I think it's a really good approach to take. I'm gonna i have to take that up as well. It's a really really good lesson. I have a, a question for you. Maybe it's a sort of a personal uh, question for for me. I have uh, somebody that's really close to me whose son is uh, uh, going through cancer, having a really hard time with chemo. And uh, the family, no matter... And they know what I do, and they're still really, really scared because their doctors are still unsure of how you know cannabis will, will work. And I know that this is an area of uh, expertise for you, and uh, this is a somebody something you've addressed before. Um, how, how can I address that to help them feel comfortable or more comfortable, not with, uh, you know, not, not not with cancer, even though you and I probably have uh, similar ideas on cannabis and cancer, but the side effects of chemo. And there's so much information out there and not only anecdotal information, what can we do to support them so their, their healthcare professionals will feel comfortable that they can actually use cannabis to help them with some of the effect, side effects of chemo?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's it's really interesting because physicians have become more open to it than they were when I was going through it. Like my oncologist was totally cool with me using cannabis, but the head of his practice was against can was against cannabis. So I ended up having to get my recommendation from my gastroenterologist. Now I do lectures at UCSF and Kaiser for palliative care and oncology and there are more physicians and nurses and at like AUCSF I have the palliative care pharmacology students that attend will attend like my trainings um so you know it's nice to have a practitioner who's open to it but then there's just also the conversation of like when I first started working in cannabis people used to ask about you know the oil cure like i want to cure my cancer with cannabis and i actually at the time it was really upsetting because when you get sick, people come out of the woodwork trying to sell you magic beans. Like everyone was after my mom to sell her like crazy waters and juices for me. And I was like, don't do it. Just don't. Um, and I don't, that's not to say that. I mean, we know through research that cancer can create cell death or cancer, cannabis can create cell death in the body, but it's not like what we talk about Um, like when they talk about starting with the size of a grain of rice and getting up to a gram, that's folk medicine.
2: You're talking about like in a a Rick Simpson oil type of protocol.
1: Exactly. Because, you know, with the, my colleagues that are doing this research and creating these protocols, just like with chemotherapy, like cancer, isn't just cancer. That's an umbrella that term that goes over a lot of different illnesses because it's affecting different parts of the body. So you want to have different protocols that also take into consideration the person's personal body chemistry and everything. And that should always be done by a researcher or a doctor who's actually doing the research protocols and presenting them. When people come to see me, it's about symptom management. Mm -hmm. And one of the things people get really nervous about is, you know, I don't want myself or my loved one to get high. And there's a lot of non-euphoric ways to be able to use cannabis That are very gentle and can give us a lot of relief. Like we can, we don't need necessarily THC to help us with appetite. We can use things like CBG or even THCA. So there's, you know, there are baby steps into it to be able to do some experimentation. And then there's also knowing about drug interactions. So you know, doctors are always a little nervous about THC, but they love their CBD. Well, CBD has an interaction with cytochrome P450. So if you have Pharmaceuticals that have that sticker that say do not take with grapefruit juice. CBD taken orally will actually it's not smoke, inhaling it won't do it, but eating it or drinking it will will change the way we metabolize those pharmaceuticals. So it's really about when I work with people who are nervous about it, I give them all the information. And then I also help set them up with a safe container for exploration, like what they need to do to figure out how it works for themselves individually and then I let them decide because it's it's not not all of us can actually you know work with we have our own you know endogenous cannabinoids but not all of us tolerate phytocannabinoids but setting up having converse intelligent conversations about what can and can't happen and how to set it up to figure out how what works well for you is a really empowering thing for people. And especially if you start with something that's more on the non-euphoric side, then they may get curious and say, hey, maybe I am interested in trying a little bit of THC or not. But I find that if you give people the information and you give them stuff to give to their physicians, because I think it's always a good idea to talk to your doctor about your cannabis use so they can get not only a full picture of what's going on with you, But physicians that I've worked with say that every time that one of their patients tells them about their experience, they learn more so that they can help their other patients. And also doctors talk, they share information. So I think that, you know, I would say conversation is normalization, but just really empowering people with the information so that they can make the decision for themselves and also confer with their physicians too. And it doesn't hurt that I've written some articles on it as well that I can send them away with because... The minute something's printed, people are like, "Oh, maybe I should look into this
2: yeah, no, totally totally makes sense uh, For those of people that may not know, what are some of those side effects of chemo that somebody can be uh, you know suffering with
1: yeah, well, I mean appetite's one of the biggest ones, appetite and nausea. <laughs> And, you know, there are pharmaceuticals that can be used to help with that too, but they can have other side effects. Like when I was going through stage three colon cancer, you know, my pain medications, my opiates and my anti-nausea drugs, both would be constipating. And you don't think about, you think about constipation as being just like, you know. Pain a pain in the ass, <laughs> <laughs> but if you have st- no pun, right? Exactly. <laughs> but when you have stage three colon cancer, it can kill you. So I was able to use cannabinoids in lieu of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I forgot what you
2: just said. Uh, I was asking you for yeah. the side uh, for what are the adverse effects of chemo, and the reason why the reason why I'm bringing this up is uh, I want to set up where. We have an adverse effect yeah. that's associated with chemo. We have actual peer-reviewed studies where phytocannabinoids have been used to address that specific, you know, adverse effect. So I want to I want to kind of lay it out in that way for our audience and also for you know my friend, so you can understand that we're not talking. You brought up an excellent point because this is where people uh, trip out when when the people talk about apoptosis or cell death. Uh, With with cannabis. Yes, it happens. Yes. And there's many reasons we can talk about that. And there's science to support that. But we're we're not shooting for the moon. It's like Elon Musk or flying to Mars. First, let's get into orbit. So what I'm trying to do is set it up in a way where there's a one to one correlation where there's an adverse effect. Here's a study. There's an adverse effect study. So you brought up, you know, constipation and and uh, appetite uh, and uh, the and nausea. Yeah, yeah. Nausea. I, got my,
1: I got my little tangent. So <laughs> we have things with appetite. We have stuff with nausea. We also, because um, chemotherapy is going after rapidly dividing cells, we get a lot of soreness in our mouths and and just like redness and sores and things like that. So using something like a tincture not only can help us with whatever we're using it for internally for other side effects, but it can also behave as a topical to help minimize the effects of chemo on our mouths. We can use it for sleep. We can use it for anxiety. And also when we're looking at nausea and anxiety, there's also anticipatory anxiety and nausea for people who are just about to go in the chemo suite if they've already been going through the rounds because they know how they're going to feel. And you almost start to feel it sometimes before you go in because you're like, oh... I know what this is going to be like. So eating, sleeping, nausea, pain, just being able to relax because there's a lot going on. Like, you know, neuropathy is a big one. I still have neuropathy in my hands and feet left over, you know, I'm almost 11 years out and it's still happening, but there's, you know, there are a lot of different things. And then there's also just stuff that happens with our skin. Sometimes we're going through it, depending on, you know, like when I work with people who are going through radiation, you're definitely getting some irritation to the skin and something like a topical, like a thicker salve might be a little bit too much. So using something like, can, there are multiple uses for products, going back to tinctures. If you have something that's an oil-based tincture, that's really gentle, you can warm it up in your hands and you can actually place it on the area. And as we know, the dermis loves cannabis. It's very healing for it. So it can be another, there, there are so many different ways that you can use it. Also, when you're looking at appetite, you know, you want to be going towards flavors that are appealing to your taste buds at the time, because sometimes our taste buds change when we go through treatment. And one thing that I'll recommend this non-cannabis for that, there's this book called The Cancer Fighting Kitchen by Rebecca Katz. And it's a great book that has all these wonderful recipes that not only address some of the symptoms that we go through when we go through the different types of chemo, but they're also extremely nutritious and flavorful to make us want to eat. Uh,
2: great points. Um, a question about something you said, anxiety. So one of the things that I get uh, personally is if I have to give blood or get a blood test for any reason, uh, I mean, it's one of the worst. and and. I'm not afraid of needles. I have tattoos everywhere. So it's not not a needle thing. I don't know what it is, but I get extreme, extreme anxiety. Now, people that have consumed cannabis and have had an event where their anxiety is triggered, they may say, oh, you know, I understand that it may help with anxiety, but I remember smoking a joint and it made me paranoid. So yeah. how can how can we kind of give them a softer landing to know that there's there are other things. And you know, obviously, you know, my company does uh, just that, but I, I'm not even talking about my company per se, just just in terms of giving somebody an experience, we say yes, it, it is a personal experience, but maybe there's a way that we can start with something that can mitigate some of that anxiety, especially knowing that you've had that before.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is, you know, like we've talked about before, we're all really different with how we respond to it. But most often people are having anxious experiences because they're trying something and they're not really, most people don't have a critical eye to cannabinoid count and dosage. And those are the conversations that we need to have. And that's one of the things that a lot of times when people are returning to cannabis because they're dealing with an illness and they're like, oh, you know what? I'll try it for this. But Back in the day, I had a really bad experience and I got super anxious. That's when I say, well, you know, I've seen a lot of patterns with people and how they react. And, you know, our neurodiversity has a lot to do with that, too. If somebody has a predisposition to anxiety or they're sensitive to pharmaceuticals, you know, we always start slow and low and always starting with something that's non-euphoric so that you don't have to deal with the anxiety. That's the one thing that I always recommend. And then when people feel more comfortable, we can get into talking about THC. We can even talk about terpenes, you know, mm-hmm. it really when we're looking at, you know, the spectrum of field, terpenes dictate a lot of that and have conversations about what might work well for them or not. But starting with very small doses and what we're looking at is the goal is to find the ideal ratio at the lowest amount that creates a desired reaction in the body Right. And You know, I've had people that even the precursors to cannabinoids have affected them. I mean, I have over 18,000 hours of experience with human beings in cannabis. And I've had four people have highly unpleasant experiences on 30 to 1 ratio CBD to THC. Mm -hmm. But that's out of thousands of people. And so that's why creating that, you know, structure or the container for experimentation is so very important, like tracking what you're using, how much you've used of it, what time you used it, as you started to feel the effects, what did you like about it? What did you not like about it? What did you wish would have happened? And then when you get that information back, whether it's a positive or a not a satisfying experience, you're collecting a lot of information as to how you as an individual metabolize cannabis when people are really nervous about anxiety, I always go back to the fact we have cannabinoids that will create no euphoric effects. Therefore, you shouldn't have any issues with anxiety. You know, The only thing that I can think of in the non-euphoric thing is going back to CBD. We used to think that it was a very small portion of the public that had a sensitivity to CBD. And it still is small, but it's larger than it was before that we thought before, because more people are self-reporting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if you're using like a CBD product and you're finding that you're getting a little more anxious and amped up than normal, or you're getting a general malaise, just stop using it.
2: Hmm. Yeah. It's it's a really good point because uh, receptor reset reset happens, uh, you know, for some people fairly quickly. So if they're using that uh, out of, you know, other substances and other drugs, it doesn't really change your neurochemistry. You can just unbind the receptor and you'll be back. And then, uh, yeah uh, I'll reset the normal and really also, mm-hmm. you know when
1: we're looking at thc like i always tell people you know when they're starting to use it if you take more than you need you should always have a high cbd product like a tincture or an inhalable because that'll downregulate some of those effects of thc so having all your tools around you and really just being <clears> cognizant <throat> of the fact that you're keeping track of things you're doing the work and also we've never had any fatalities from cannabis on its own
2: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, we're talking about adverse effects. I mean, we're talking about, yes, it can be unpleasant to use that word. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, the level of adverse effect compared to other substances is really uh, minor. uh, Absolutely. In a big scheme of things. So, Sarah, where did you grow, grow up? I want to learn more about you.
1: Yeah, I grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I'm a youper. But I've been living in California now for almost 25 years.
2: Okay, and then uh, so from Michigan, you uh, you moved to California for.
1: I moved to California to to teach kids acting, and then I got caught up in the dot com boom, and I became um, a IT buyer for many years, and then I went into operations management, and I left corporate to go into nonprofit, and I worked in civil rights for many years. And then, you know, when I when I got sick, I fell into cannabis, working into cannabis by accident. Actually, years earlier, somebody asked me to be an ops manager for a dispensary. And I was like, I'll never be hireable again. I'd love, to, <laughs> but I'm not going to.
2: Well, what was that moment? It's so funny you say that because I was in corporate for a while too. And there's a moment when you go to your LinkedIn profile. And you change and add cannabis, and it's like a big drumroll moment. Oh shit! When I do that, that's it. It's no going back.
1: It's true. I remember the first time that somebody did an article on me, and I had to really think about it for because I wasn't. I hadn't changed it on LinkedIn yet. I had, you know, I was going back to school for my master's and working behind the bar at the dispensary, and I was like, Do I really? Do I want, really want to, I have to ask myself, is this what I really want to do? Because I'm committing to this. This is on my permanent record now. Right. And I'm glad I did because it's, you know, you always think about like the job that's not just a job that fulfills your life. And that's, I mean, I found my heart's work in the weirdest of ways. If I hadn't had the experience of going through cancer and realizing like, you know, I almost died twice during chemo. And so my mantra was, you know, I didn't almost die twice to lead a shit life. (laughs) I'm going to do this. I'm going to live for myself and do my thing. And being, you know, in the 215 days in cannabis and seeing how things were changing and evolving, it was a really exciting time to be there and realizing how much of a difference we could all make with how this looks if we stick to it and really commit to the work, into communicating and influencing policy, and so then I was all in. It was just over from there.
2: Yeah, and it, and it's so funny because nowadays, like uh, my daughter, friend, nobody even thinks it's a big deal anymore. It's like, yeah, cannabis, whatever, it's legal, it's fine, not, not a big deal. But back in the day, uh, you're you're coming out, and you're really coming out, and you're and there's no way back. It's just it's a major decision. So you know, for people that really can't relate to that, it, it, that. That moment in time, it was uh, it was still great. Even under, as you said, under under 215, like our shops got shut down and you were operating in the gray and you don't know what's legal, what's not legal. And once you're out there, there's a stigma associated with that. I remember my family and everybody was like, oh, you know, they didn't even want to talk about it. But later on, my dad talks to his friends about it oh yeah you know my dad's son does this and he uses that so it's it's a big big uh it, it's a big decision to uh, make at that time so yeah I can definitely go back in, in my mind and think about that
1: yeah well my mom's a cancer researcher she did the clinical trials on the chemo I took years later mm-hmm. and when I went when I started working in cannabis she's like oh she's in school you know she went back to school she's doing her thing and then it was when I said I wanted to stay she's like ah she just survived cancer. She's having a midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. And then now she's really happy with what I do. She's like, I had I had no idea it was going to become this. And I, I once jokingly said to her, I was like, so how do you feel about your daughter who lives with their cat by herself on the edge of town and sells weed? <laughs> exactly. She's like, I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. And it was nice. Like when... My family was okay with talking about it and actually asking me questions and stuff. And it was, but it was a process.
2: My, my mom is still not, she's still, my dad, 100% my mom, I, I can feel it in her voice. She's still like, it's, a, it's not, it's a little bit of an embarrassment for her. I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a doctor, uh, but I am, you know, something to do with cannabis and still it's, it's just very uncomfortable with that. I can,
1: I can definitely tell. You wait. wait till her friends start pulling out the pictures of the kids, and they're like, "Look at, they're going a. They, he has a grow, <laughs> isn't it?" Beautiful?
2: Oh, oh, I've, I, I'm. People can Google me. There's plenty of pictures of me, uh, you know, standing on stage and, and being in grows and all that stuff. <laughs> so I'm sure she, she's like uh, very. She's got a lot of trepidation around that. So going back, what you were saying about uh, teaching kids acting, were you? Uh, was that your goal? Did you want to be an actor?
1: Yeah, I went to school for theater. I first went yeah. for journalism, then I switched to theater. And I really I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to actually teach at a college level because just kind of like the same thing I do with education, it's you know, I looked at theater as a way to be able to educate and communicate with people, you know, in a creative way. Because when somebody's relaxed and enjoying something, they have an open mind and it can open them to other experiences. And I, for me, I love working with kids. And I felt like, I felt really lucky to have grown up in a really creative artistic household. Mm. You know, it gave me a lot of skills to creatively feed myself and have critical thought. And so a friend of mine at the time was supposed to be starting a nonprofit, an arts nonprofit for children in San Francisco. Mm. And, you know, being from the Midwest, thinking about California I was like, uh, you know, I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, all these flaky people. I don't know, man. And then I came out to visit and I realized I belonged here. And that California, I mean, the middle America has a really weird view of the coasts. And I shared that because I was born and raised in a small town up, you know, on Lake Superior. And then you come here and you realize there are all these amazing people from all over the world and there's nothing I can do to be weird here. <laughs> right. Absolutely nothing. And I like loved that. Um, and then, you know, I stage managed. I also was a stage manager. So I did theater stage managing. And then when I was um, here in the city, I did some theater stage managing and I even did concert stage management for a while, which was a lot of fun.
2: Why, why not? Uh, why not Hollywood? If you were uh, wanted to be an actor and wanted to kind of be in that space, uh, San Francisco is not, really known for their uh, acting and, and movie industry or anything of like that?
1: I think because I, you know, though I'm a creative, I always like to teach. And it wasn't like, I mean, I have a few friends who did move to LA um, and one of them is by coastal now and she does really well. She's in all sorts of sitcoms and commercials and stuff. And the other one is um, in tech and he travels all over. And every, Anytime he comes into town for a concert or something, we always run into each other. But I was never, realistically, I understood that I wasn't going to be a movie star. I, I I loved, like my, I think, you know, one of my professors said it in the most profound way for me, and I look at this now even with my work now, that, you know, love the art, the art in yourself, not yourself in the art.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that because I wanted to be in music uh, and my parents talked me out of it and I always in my life, I, I keep going back to wanting to be in music, but I think that seeing enough concerts and I, I try to see live music like every week, I think that fulfills a part of that. I really need it's uh, uh, is that connection to music. I don't really need to be a rock star, even though I'm kind of lying because I, I definitely uh, feel like that when I'm up on stage speaking, I, I, I love uh, having that. And people are like, are oh, you getting nervous? I'm like, yeah, but so what? I mean, I you know that's that's my rock star moment. I get I get I feel that a little bit. So yeah, it I, is fulfilling in that way. So I, I definitely can relate to that.
1: I I agree. I I get it. Like I get an exhilaration when I'm in front of like 500 people talking and doing. You know, it's not that I'm not nervous, mm-hmm. but the the act of sharing and communicating with people and. And feeling their reactions, because there is an interaction, even though it's not a two-way conversation, is a beautiful thing. And you know, my husband for over 30 years was a touring musician. And one of the things he said to me was, he's like, people always think that, you know, he's like, being on stage is like so much fun. And he loved working with the audiences. He's like, but you don't think about like the 16 hours before that, where you're like, <laughs> you know, you're working your ass off. And it's there's a, there's a glamour to it, but the, the less glamorous side of it, and that's even with the work that we do, like, people see us on stage, and they're like, oh, you have this awesome life, and it's like, yeah, but I'm busting my butt before I get over there,
2: you know? Yeah. N- nobody cares about the process, they just want the outcome, like, you're there, but it took a long time to get there, uh, you know, it, I think somebody said, like, uh, my overnight success was 10 years, so yeah. I think that's... It's exactly, and people don't, nobody cares about Ooh. it. It's just when they just want to see the shiny thing on stage, not not the work that it took uh, to get there. Um, yeah. I want to ask you a question about in, information. There is so much information, you being an educator, there's so much stuff changing, like on a daily, on, a, on an hourly basis. What do you do to sort of keep up and educate yourself? Well, when we
1: worked in a pandemic, I would I loved being able to go to conferences that had a lot more educational materials, a lot more presentations by researchers. I have a lot of friends that are researchers and that do a lot of you know work around, you know, can cannab- of like the different cannabinoids and different protocols. So we have a lot of conversations. I read a lot, mm. but the one thing that I learned the most from is hearing back from people about what their responses are. Especially when it's a weird one. Because I always tell people if you come to one of my classes, you're getting a report back on how the majority of human beings respond. Mm-hmm. You check out that, you check out research, you check out one of your favorite cannabis education books, you're getting good information, but it's not the full picture. And so you have to have all of that. And, you know, when people will say, oh, you know, don't use me, oh, Sarah's an expert in cannabis. There's no experts. I, I, the part I love about my job the most is that I learn something all the time. We're constantly learning new things, and we're constantly proving ourselves wrong.
2: And that's really cool. Yeah, I, I love that you just said about the expert thing, because I, I always like roll my eyes, because people are like, Should you? I'm like, no, not an expert. I am the most curious student. I love to learn about this stuff. I hate study, but I love to learn about this stuff. So if I can talk to somebody that has some knowledge... Take a bit of this, take a bit of that, and be open because that's things will change uh, for obvious reasons because we don't have a program to really do real clear clinical research on this plant yet the way we do other things. So, yeah, being be open-minded is, is definitely uh, a way to be able to, uh, to do that. Um, I had a question for you on traditional therapeutics, mixed, like traditional medicine or whatever, uh, pharmaceutical. Pharmaceutical medicines mixed with uh, maybe even traditional Chinese uh, medicine with phytocannabinoids—is there a role to mix the you know traditional therapeutics, pharma, and maybe traditional Chinese medicine? Uh, how can they all fit together?
1: Yeah, I I really believe in that. Like when, a lot of times people always assume because I work with cannabis that I'm not supportive of traditional allopathic medicine. It's a really good thing. I think that as human beings, like there's a lot of rich history with Chinese medicine. It's like I was talking to I was talking to my gastroenterologist the other day and she's like millions of Chinese folks can't be wrong. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's true. We, I think what we really need to do instead of looking at something as one good way to approach it, we need to have lots of different methodologies to actually create homeostasis in our bodies. I, you know, and I love working with herbs. I actually have done trainings with Chinese medicine practitioners around cannabis to kind of to help with a lot of the stigma around it because it was part of the original Chinese medicine pharmacopoeia. We just, mm-hmm. you know, colonialism and the opium war put kind of a dent in that, you know, so we're starting to kind of reclaim a little bit more of that knowledge for people who are in Chinese medicine and herbs, you know, I love herbs. They are really helpful. But the one thing that we need to remember is that, you know, pharmaceuticals originated from herbs. There are interactions, there are things, they are are medicine. It's not just something that you can play with. So having a healthy respect for all the different ways of, you know, being able to heal ourselves or the modalities of healing is really important. And I think that you know, integrating it all together is wonderful, and we're seeing more medical practitioners that are open to that. Like, um, I'm going to make an appointment pretty soon with this a guy who's an acupuncturist who also got his doctor in pharmacology. I mean, what a cool combination! Because he sees the full picture and really understands that there's more to it than just one way to attack the problem.
2: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, and, and and looking at functional and integrative medicine, that's that's exactly what it is. And I think it's it's a mindset also because uh, you know what what doctors are used to is it hurts, we'll give you a shot or we'll give you a pill. And I, I think now they're starting to look at the root cause: what is causing that? And traditional Chinese medicine, obviously, I mean, the, you know, they they touch your your foot because they're trying to address your liver. You know, it's, it makes total sense uh, to do that kind of thing. And I think that being open-minded, but I still believe that there are uh, a lot of tr- uh, traditional doctors that only have – they have their blinders on. They only see their area, and that's it. But I think it's getting a lot more uh, open-minded um, approach now with using that integrative and, and functional uh, th- therapies.
1: I think it's a huge disservice when our medical practitioners just are in one lane. Yeah. And I think that it's reflective of the unhealthy situation that insurance companies have brought up where they only have- A hundred
2: percent. A hundred percent. I want to share something with you, if I may. Uh, let me know if you, can, if you can hear this. And I just want to ask you to know who this is.
1: No, what's about my songs? Not everyone gets to have a moment in the sun. No, not everyone
2: Do I have to pay a royalty for this, by the way? No, he would say that. <laughs> All right, sorry. I'll, I'll 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 add this if if I can. But it's wonderful. I love that, and I also like your selection. So I got this from a post about oh man. If I can remember correctly. Uh, it it had to do with a five song sesh. I think it's five songs for a sesh or something that I like, I like to find quirky things about guests, not just like I did every single interview, man. I found that fascinating. First of all, I got to commend you and compliment you on your list. I mean, who else puts like Robert Glasper and, and talks about tiny desk, which is my favorite way to listen to music. Uh, only people that actually know how to sing do a tiny desk. Uh, otherwise they, 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 don't. So yeah. what? There's a whole music career you didn't even talk about.
1: Oh, what, yeah. I was in the midst of um, finishing up my solo album when I got sick. So I do, I do jazz and blues and bossa Nova. And actually that album, when I, I was working on another project, Um, with an artist who was dating Prairie Prince, the drummer for the Tubes and Todd Rodgerton's drummer. And he listened to a couple of my songs and he was like, I want to play on your album. And I was like, Prairie, I don't have any, I can't afford you. And he's like, I didn't ask you for any money. So I actually, that song um, doesn't have him on it, but I have a couple other songs on the album that he played on and my goal actually in the next couple years is to, to finish the album because i have a i have a new producer and i'm gonna go up to portland and finish it up but yeah i, I love singing jazz
2: great i i love that and I, i'm a jazz and blues i'm an everything guy but it, when i when i first started seeing that and and even your suggestions on on the the songs i was like Robert Glass for Nina Simone, if I remember correctly. I'm like, yeah, Uh, nobody, it's not, and and people talk about like weed songs all the time in these sessions, but you, you brought in some really, really good, strong uh, music for people to really listen to. And it's super cool. Put on the headphones and listen to some of that stuff, Uh, man, and your stuff too,
1: Yeah, those were some of my favorite songs. And that song that you just played, actually, I used the um, instrumental for the intro to my podcast. But I come from Uh, a really rich musical background because my father's father, um, Lutfala Mofaham Payan, there's a mouthful for you. He is actually a renowned um, Persian art music teacher. He did a lot. He actually was the editor of a magazine called Chang in Iran, that helped preserve Persian art music because it was it was going by the wayside. And he he taught a lot of prolific Persian artists. And when I was I was stage managing a a play several years ago that was written by an Iranian playwright, and she had Iranian musicians accompanying it. And when they found out who my grandfather was my grandpa died when I was seven. Like I didn't know all the cool things he did until a long time after that. And the musicians like fanboyed on me. They're like, what did he listen to? What did he like? I'm like, I don't know.
2: <laughs> well, I am associated with a, a large Persian community in, uh, in LA. So I have a lot of my, my business partners, girlfriends, Persian, and all, all these other people, my friends and, and people I know. So I'm sure they'll, they'll know the name.
1: And oh like that. yeah.
2: That's super, super cool uh for, for the sake of time, um, I want to, and I definitely want to have you back on because I have so many other questions that I want to geek out uh, with you for, but I want to be cognizant of your schedule. So I asked my guests three questions at the end. Uh, some of them may be really complicated. No, I'm just kidding. Really easy. I'm ready. They're really easy questions. <laughs> <I'm ready. laughs> <They're> really easy <laughs> questions. So let me, uh, let me see if I can go through them uh, really quickly with you. Uh, please describe your first experience with cannabis.
1: My first experience with cannabis was when I was in eighth grade and my best friend, Christy and I got it from a senior in high school. We lived on a golf course and it was winter. So we put our snowshoes on and we went out to the middle of the golf course to smoke it in one of the little shelters there. And we didn't get high or we thought we didn't get high. So we went back to him. We asked for our money back and he didn't get back. And he was like, sure, kids. And we never got anything back.
2: that's awesome I love that so it was a pretty good experience the first one
1: <laughs> yeah well you know it was it was exhilarating because we were like trying to like get away so we wouldn't get into trouble and we we're you know kind of like leaning in trying to like light it with our I, I don't I, know
2: what we used I think probably yeah, I, it was a badly rolled joint yeah I was in eighth grade too so I, I remember that that age uh, group um so being in music, and we started talking about music, uh, I'm a big music uh, guy, too. Do you remember what the first concert you ever attended was?
1: Yeah, Huey Lewis in the News in fifth grade. And then my husband toured with him for many years. Huey showed him the ropes. Wow.
2: Uh, very, very underrated musician, by the way. I think Huey Lewis, first of all, like so many hits, but also as a musician, fantastic. A-
1: and a great <laughs> guy.
2: Really? It's unfortunate he's got some uh, health uh, issues or that he was talking about recently.
1: Yeah, so he's got some right. stuff with his ears going on.
2: Exactly, yeah. yeah. So. What was the last concert you, you attended?
1: The last concert I attended was Hot Tuna. Because we're friends with Yorma and Jack. And it was New oh, Year's right before we went into lockdown.
2: Super cool. Um, do you remember what the first album you bought was?
1: Tina Turner, Private Dancer.
2: Right. Did you see the documentary?
1: I did. And you know, she's actually the only person I've ever written a fan letter to. Wow.
2: Yeah. It's fantastic. Like she's a amazing. very, very strong woman. Yeah. And it's, that's one strong woman.
1: Yeah. She uh, and Billy holiday were my two favorites in fifth grade. Love that
2: man. Can't go wrong with either. Um, what has cannabis meant in your life?
1: Ooh, that's a cannabis for me. Cannabis, you know, is, it means, it, it, there's so much. There's It's so layered. It's, I feel like it's been part of my creative freedom. It's one of those things where my whole life, I was looking for meaning in my work because I always joke that I'm incredibly greedy. I like every one of my 24 hours to matter and to be for me. And I always gave it, gave people a lot of credit that were able to do a day job so that they have this really rich life out of it. And they, cause I can't, I'm stubborn. I like, if my heart's not in it, I'm not there. So it gave me my freedom to be able to love my work. Um, and also, you know, so many people, when you get sick or when good things are, I'll put it this way, when really good things, and when really bad things happen to us, it brings out the best and the worst in people. And we get to really see who people are in many ways. So many people that I didn't expect supported me in so many beautiful ways when I was sick. That a year out of chemo, when I started working in a dispensary, a huge part of my healing, but also paying it forward, was being able to help other people who came in on the worst days of their lives. And so, you know, for me... I really believe in empowering people and supporting them and looking at not just a community that's like within a 10 mile radius, but being a citizen of the world and how what can we do to make the world a better place? And I, I look at cannabis as an opportunity to change the way we do business, the way we look at each other, the way we approach health. And it's just an all-encompassing thing for me that just brings me great
2: joy yeah it's that's beautiful i love that answer all right final bonus question you qualified for bonus question
0: Yay. Uh, p-
2: please describe what your room looked like growing up
1: it wasn't fun because i was doing time on the rock with barbara she didn't let me do anything but <laughs> pretty much it was like uh when I was growing up, it was a very foofy, girly room with no posters. It was all like Holly Hobby and all the things that later on I didn't like.
2: <laughs> but, well, was it all pink and frilly and stuff? Or
1: It was peach. Peach and frilly. Peach and frilly with doll houses and dolls I never played with because I like to... I was more of a tomboy. I liked to be out in the woods and I liked to ski and bike and i had female friends but i had a i had mostly dude friends like we would take stuff apart and you know just and later on when we were older like college it was like going for hikes and doing stuff like that so i was really like i mean i have a feminine side but i've always i've always been like less about dolls and more about climbing trees
2: got it very cool so sarah uh, I want to thank you so much for uh, joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, contact you, social media, whatever you want to share?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, my website is live2. Well, I have sarahpion.com, which has a lot of my articles and stuff in there. And then there's the podcast website, which is Planted with Sarah. On Instagram, um, I am Sarah Mitra Pion. On Twitter. I'm Sarah M. Pion. I'm planted with Sarah on IG and Twitter. And I'm Sarah Mitra Pion on Facebook. And Len, I just want to let people know too that you're going to be on my podcast. And I'm very excited to continue the conversation.
2: Yeah, we'll pick up on that too. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me too. And thank you for being on here. I really appreciate it. uh, This was wonderful. I, I love talking to you. Oh, thank you. Likewise. Yeah, that's great. We'll, we'll have to do it again and we'll continue in your, your podcast. But thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you and, for having uh, me. Yeah, we'll talk soon. Talk soon.
0: Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network network